you have a Bible and you want to follow along, I invite you to open to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 12, verse 21, because we stopped at chapter 12, verse 20. Um, again, <clears throat> themes that are important for us in this studying this book, and the lengths that God will go to, through to save his people who can't save themselves. I mean, it's amazing. All these miraculous plagues and all of that went along with that in order to save his people and in order to defeat, graphically defeat the gods of the Egyptians. We also keep being reminded throughout this story of the Exodus about the hardness of heart of the Pharaoh and how that's a picture of the hard heart of everyone who is unsaved until God's grace conquers. And we, to one degree or another, we can remember that in our own lives, I'm sure. Uh, but I want to also tie <clears throat> what we're doing with Exodus, as always, to Christ and what we preached on Sunday, and we'll continue preaching this Sunday, about God's chosen people, the nation, the ethnic people of Israel were chosen to be a vessel of God with the laws, the prophets, the covenants, all of which pointed to Christ. Choosing the nation to be that vessel through which the, the good news of the one day would come Messiah was to come through, and even the Messiah was to come through them, doesn't mean that they're all saved. You just have to read the Old Testament. You can see that not all Jewish people were saved. Very few in the Old Testament, very few Gentiles were, but not all Jews were. And the reason why is because, as we learn from Galatians chapter 3, the promises to Abraham's seed are not to, Galatians 3.16, not to seeds many, meaning the nation, the ultimate promise of salvation, but to the seed, singular, these are Paul's words, which is Christ. And then in turn, all of us who are in Christ. And so everything that we're reading about this in every way, even when we can't see them, even when we're not sure, everything we read in the Old Testament has one main point, Christ Jesus. It's all pointing to him and fulfilled in him. We left off in chapter 12, verses 1 through 20, looking at the initial instructions for the Passover. We'll begin this time in verse 21, where the Passover is actually celebrated for the first time. Chapter twenty or chapter twelve, verse twenty-one, and in this section, God is going to kill the firstborn. God is going to spare the Israelites, not because of their ethnicity, but because of the blood that they obediently put on the doorposts of the house and on the lintel across the top, which is a picture of the blood of Christ on the cross. So here's where it begins, verse twenty-one. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them. Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts. So there's the up, two uprights, the doorpost and the lintel is the beam that sits on top for the doorway. <clears throat> um, uh, and do so with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So put the blood on there and go in the house and hunker down and just wait. 
Why? Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. So you can see this is a picture of those who are under the cross, those who are under the blood of Christ. And we need to stay there because it's only there that we're safe from the plague of death. It's only there. Verse 24, we're going to get some instructions here. You shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. I was asked a really good question. It's a question that should be asked, and, and I tried to answer it off the top of my head last time after the study, but I want to take just a moment and talk about it to everybody. What do we make of these things that were told to the Jews and said, this is a lasting covenant forever for all your generations? Because it's not still happening. What do we make of that? Well, in this sense, when God is giving them, giving Israel instructions that he says, you're to do this as a people forever, they were forever a people until something happened. Everything that had to do with them was pointing to Christ. And once Christ come, came, that ended it. So forever does not mean forever. There's no Passover in heaven. That's part of forever. And there's no Passover in the church because the Old Testament uh, Passover becomes the fulfillment. The Old Testament Passover is pointing to the fulfillment which is in Christ, the ultimate Passover, because of course his sacrifice was done at the time of the Passover. They were all, everything in the law, everything that the Jews did and were told to do forever, they were to do this forever and everything they were talking about pointed to Christ. Well, once Christ came, he fulfilled it. And so it's no longer necessary. Is it wrong to celebrate the Passover? No. But it would only be as an instructional method to, to let us know what they did. Because we don't, we're not the nation of Israel. We're, we're not keeping the ceremonial and the civil laws. So what do we have now? that's forever until it's not, that's like the Passover, the Lord's Supper. The confessions of the faith always say we're to receive the Lord's Supper and we're to do this regularly until Christ comes again. So the Passover was until Christ comes the first time and fulfills it in his death on the cross. Now he changes the Passover into the Lord's Supper, which we are to continue until Christ comes again. And then there'll be no need for uh, the Passover that's the remembrance of Christ, because we will be in heaven with him. So, short version of this answer, forever means unless or until God does something else. And sometimes he does. <clears throat> I hope that helps. Verse 25, it'll come to pass that when you come into the land which the Lord gives you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. So here they're told this is not a one-time event. This is something that as long as you're in the land, you're to keep this. Once you go into the land, you're to continue to keep this. It's going to continue in the promised land. Verse 26, And it shall be when your children say to you, what, is, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So, the Passover was a reminder of what God did, and they were to remember this. It's, the, it's a scary thing to be saved so long you forgot about when you got saved. 
So it's a reminder of what God has done. We should never forget. We should cling with precious fondness to the memories of those first days when we knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and secondly, like the Holy, like the, um, it's like the Lord's Supper is a reminder, but it's also a means of teaching our children. He says, you do this ceremony, and when your kids say, why are we doing this? You don't say, because we do it, be quiet and just do it. No. You use it as an opportunity to teach your children. You know, and when we have children who are young <clears throat> and in not maybe saved or not baptized, and we tell them, someday this will make more sense to you when you're saved, because this is what happened to your mother and I, or this is what happened to your father and I. We were saved by the grace of God, and here's what it is. It's all about Jesus, and we receive the Lord's Supper as a reminder. Do you see how this is not only a reminder to us, but it's a teaching vehicle for us to disciple our children? The next generation, too often, too often, I'll get into this, I think, a little bit more later, but this the second generation Christians, a lot of times, they don't know. They're just, this is all they know. So there's no, there's no power in it to them. There's nothing spe special about it. It's like, yeah, well, you know, it's what we do. Rather than, no, this is, this is about salvation. This is about Christ. So what in verse 28 did they do after getting this instruction? <coughs> Excuse me. The children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. In verse 29 through 42, we read about the tenth plague, which is the plague of the death of the firstborn. <clears throat> verse 29, and it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck. Notice who did this. It wasn't the devil, it was God. At midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, just as God told, again, I bring this up several times, just as God told Moses that this whole extravaganza that you're going to be going through with the Pharaoh is not going to end until his son dies. And now it's time. <coughs> the firstborn of the captive who's in the dungeon. So it's the firstborn of the Pharaoh and the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon, which means without respect to class, without respect to education, without respect to ethnicity, without respect to anything, they're all going to lose their first son. And not only that, but in all of the rest of the livestock. So this is going to be so... Um, it's going to be so prevalent that even the animals are going to suffer this. And, and just please, don't think of pets. This isn't about pets. It doesn't say pets. It says livestock. This is their means of eating and their means of commerce and this is what they do. This would be like saying, you know, all of your businesses are going to be affected by this too, as if, as if the death of a family member wouldn't be enough. So verse 30, Pharaoh arose in the night he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. Yeah, no kidding, because every household that had a child, that child, the oldest one, died. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. Now I want to throw out something for you just to hold in your mind for a minute. There's no mention in this instruction to saying that it's the firstborn sons. So from the instructions of the Passover, it seems like it's the firstborn period. But it's interesting, and I'm going to 
tip my hand a little bit. Later on, when they're told about redeeming the firstborn among you, because the firstborn was mine, God says, I, we're going to get to explaining it later, but um, God says you have to redeem the firstborn. You have to sacrifice the firstborn animal, and you have to redeem your, your firstborn because the firstborn are mine because I spared them at the, at the Passover. But it's interesting, in the instructions about the redemption of the firstborn, it was the redemption of the firstborn sons. So I'll tell you why later. No mention of male or female, though. Verse 31 to 36. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord. Remember, serve means what? Worship. Worship the Lord as you have said, as you have said to Pharaoh. This is what you're going to do. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said. Remember, Pharaoh said, don't take the flocks. They said, no, we're going to. And be gone and bless me also. Um, verse 33, and the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. Now, here things are changing. Up until this point, Moses and Aaron have been dealing with the Pharaoh, and the plagues would hit, and Pharaoh would maybe pretend to repent for 15 minutes and then change his mind and, and all this kind of stuff, because it was his word. Everything was his word, and they were dealing with him, and it was all, let my people go, let my people go. It's to the point now when one, the firstborn in every household died, that the Egyptian people, they don't care what the Pharaoh says, the people raised up, rose up and said, get thee hence, people. We don't want you here. This wasn't because they particularly loved the Jews. It wasn't particularly they were afraid of God, at least not all of them, maybe some of them by this point. But self-preservation was setting in. This, we've seen 10 plagues now, and this last one, every single household, every single family has lost a child. And you stop and think, if there's multiple generations living, you could have lost the grandfather who was the firstborn of his family, and the, his son who was the firstborn of his family, and his daughter who's the firstborn of his family. I mean, every family had multiple people dying. And the people said, get these people out of here, and do it now. Don't let the door hit you. Get out and go. They were eager. For they said, end of verse 33, we shall all be dead. What did they know? For all they knew that they, they were all going to die now. They were very frightened. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes and on their, sh on their shoulders. Uh, now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they asked the Egyptians articles of silver, asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they, the Egyptians, granted them what they request. They're saying, go, give us your loot, take it. We're done. Whether they were realizing it was God or whether they were just afraid of self-preservation, self we can't say. It says, thus they, the Israelites, plundered the Egyptians. And people have said it was their chance for retroactive pay for 400 years of, of slavery. I don't know if that would quite work, but um, uh, that's what it is. It's also interesting to me to know, uh, to see the beginning of why unleavened bread. 
God told them that they needed to have their bread, they needed to be dressed and ready to go, and they needed to have the, the bread ready to go without waiting for it to rise. It was a practical consideration because you're going to have to leave in a hurry. It's, it's, it comes up later that God talks about it when he tells them how to celebrate the Passover, that they're to celebrate it with unleavened bread. But I, my, my conviction is, is the unleavened bread isn't in, in and of itself, at least not from the beginning of any particular spiritual interest. Now, later on, it became symbolic of, of leaven, became symbolic of evil. But there's no mention of that in the Passover. What there's mention of, I want you to remember that when I saved you, I did it right now, and you had to get going right now. So that's why they had unleavened bread, and that's why they ate unleavened bread for seven days afterwards, uh, because of the Passover and their haste in getting away. <clears throat> Verse 37. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. That's about eight miles. Eight miles isn't a long, long way to go. But when you're talking about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, so if there is one adult male, they weren't like Americans. They didn't have one point no kids and call it quits. They, they had families. You know, They didn't have, for, for some obvious reasons, there was nothing they could do to stop it. But... So conservatively, each man and each representing a household could have had a wife and we'll just say conservatively two kids. Well, you take 600,000 and multiply it by four and you got over two million. Now, again, we don't know exactly how many people, but rough estimates are saying that it, could, that it would be at least two million Jews who were ready to go on this thing. Now, why do I bring that up at this point? Not only because the scripture says it. They didn't go very far, but they had to go with two million people. You know, it's hard to get a crowd organized and do anything. You know, try to get a bunch of kindergartners to go in a straight line. You know, it just it doesn't work too good. Try to get a bunch of adults in a straight line. It doesn't go too good. So all it takes is one person. We we're all have to stop because so-and-so is missing, right? Can you imagine trying to get everybody organized? Okay, come on, we're leaving now. Everybody's got to go now and trying to rally that many people. Moses deserves some sort of special reward, which I'm sure he's enjoying in heaven right now, for putting up with this. This must have been amazing, trying to corral all these people. It would, and humanly speaking, it's impossible. It was obviously the Holy Spirit that did it. Uh, verse 38, not only was there 600,000 men on foot besides children, besides women and children, Verse 38, a mixed multitude went up with them. Now, who is this mixed multitude? We don't know for sure. Was it mixed because it, there were some Egyptians in there? Probably. Were these Egyptians people who were now believers in the living God? Possibly. It doesn't say. But one thing's for sure, a lot of Egyptians probably were looking around and saying, there's no future here. I mean, you stop and think this, you've, you've seen, not all of you have seen, but maybe some of you have seen pictures of of. Berlin at the end of World War II. You've seen pictures of cities that are just a hollow wreck of what... These plagues decimated this country. This place was a wasteland. It was the premier place in the world, the premier empire of the Near East at that time. And God's plagues wiped them out, left them as a mess. And there was probably some Egyptians ago... Yeah, we were with you all along. You know, we're going with you. We want to go with you. So 
we don't know for sure whether they were believers or they just wanted to spare their, their lives. But a mixed multitude went up with them. By the way, the mixed multitude in the church is not a good thing. We're happy when non-believers come to church to hear the gospel, but no church should do... There's two things that churches should not do when it comes to non-believers. You should never accept non-believers as members of the church. A mem the, to be a member of the church, to be a, a member of the visible church, a local church, you have to at least profess faith in Christ. Now, we can't see people's hearts. There's probably in every church people who profess faith in Christ who are not believers, which is sad, but it's probably true. But you need to be a believer in Jesus Christ to be a member of a local church. The other thing that the church has started doing about 30 years ago, and it's, it's destroyed the church's testimony, is they said, we need to turn our worship services into evangelistic events. So the main goal of our church services on Sundays is to get non-believers in here. What can we do to make them like us? And guess what happens to the church? It's a mixed multitude. And you read throughout the history of Israel, the mixed multitude. In other words, non-believers mixed in with believers are a mess. It's a mess. Our, our job as Christians is to go out and evangelize, not merely to call people to church and then try to refashion our church after the desires of the world. So a mixed multitude went up with them and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. <clears throat> and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because, here it is, they were driven out of Egypt and couldn't wait. This was a practical reason in the first place about the unleavened bread, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. And again, as I say, it's become more uh, thought of as that leaven is a, represent, is a represent, representation excuse me, of evil, but that wasn't the original intent. Verse 40, Now the sojourn of the children who lived in Israel or excuse me, in Egypt, was 430 years. So we a lot of times say they were slaves for 400 years. That's a roundabout. It was 430 years, and it came to pass at the end of 430 years on that very same day. In other words, not the day that marked the exact 140 years. We don't know about that. <clears throat> but on the very day of the Exodus, get out and go. They, were, they didn't lollygag. They didn't wait for their, their uh, pl travel plans to come in. They just had to get, be ready to go. Uh, on that same day, and it came to pass that all, now watch this, all the armies of the Lord, now that's a line you could just read over and miss and not pay any attention to, but think about it for a second. Who were these people? What have they been doing for the last three, 300 years at least? They weren't slaves the day they showed up in Egypt, but they eventually became slaves. What were they? Slaves. What does God call them? The armies of the Lord. That's, that to me is significant. God looks at his people, even though we're sometimes a ragtag group of knuckleheads, and he says, no, these are the army. You're in, you're, you know, this is what Paul writes in, in um, 2 Timothy, where he talks about no one who is in, uh, brought into military service is to be concerned with the things of this life, but rather how he may please who, him who enlisted him as a soldier. Why does Paul say that? Because as Christians, we don't live to enjoy this world. We live to please him, Christ, who enlisted us as soldiers in his army. So the picture of God's people being an army of the Lord is here for Israel, but it's also for Christians in the New Testament. So the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a solemn night of observance to the Lord. Yeah, because all the, they had, every family was stricken with so many deaths. 
And they didn't, and you know, I don't know if you ever think about stuff like this. I do because I'm kind of weird, but this thing happened and they had to go now. Well, what about burying all their dead? There's no mention of that. So they, this, was, this was a solemn occasion um, of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt and thinking about at what cost. This is the night the Lord, not, this is the night of the Lord, a solemn observance for the children of Israel throughout their generations. And I just make a note to myself, just as Christmas is a, an a, a, is an observance of the coming of Christ to save us. Just as Easter is an observance of what he did to save us. The difference is, for them it was a solemn thing because they had deaths in their families. For us it's a joyous thing because Christ died in our place. See, Christ is woven throughout all this if we take the time to think about it. Exodus 12, 43 through 51, the Passover additional rules. Verse 43. Three. And the Lord said to Aaron and Moses, this is the ordinance of the Passover. So he's going to give them some more specific details about how to observe this on the, in the 40 years of wandering and once you're in the new land. First of all, first thing he says, no foreigner shall eat it. No foreigner shall eat it. This is what, again, carried in. I'm going to, I'm going to make some parallels here in this, this paragraph. Because there's a continuity between God's dealing with Israel in the Old Testament and God's dealing with Christians in the New Testament because the church in the New Testament is the New Testament Israel. Not instead of Israel, but fulfilling all the promises, being added to, we are grafted in. God is adding the church to the spiritual Israel. <clears throat> Nobody who wasn't Jewish was allowed to receive the Passover. How does that translate to us? You've got to be a Christian to receive the Lord's Supper. You've got to be a Christian to receive the Lord's Supper. Verse 44, but let every man's servant who is bought for a money whom you have circumcised, in other words, someone who is converted. So if a person's a foreigner, but they're converted to Judaism and they've received the sign of circumcision, then he may eat. What does that tell us as Christians? This is why we, we, we say you need to be baptized to receive the Lord's Supper. It's a continuity of the Testaments. Uh, if you've been circumcised, then he may eat. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it unless, of course, just as it said in the line before that, they become Jewish. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. There's a picture of the Passover lamb. Jesus had not a bone broken. Even though they were breaking the bones of the three men on the crosses, they didn't break his in fulfillment of this prophetic word. All of the congregation of Israel shall keep it. All of the church. This is why the Lord's Supper, this is a conviction that I think, well, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say how many have, but it's a, certainly a conviction that I have, and I'm not alone in it. A lot of people do. I learned this from my former pastor. Um, you don't do communion with little groups or by yourself or with your family. You do communion when the, when the body of Christ is gathered together. It's something for the gathered church. So he, he says it shall be eaten um, when the Verse 47, the congregation of the Lord shall keep it when the body is gathered. And when a stranger... Do, well, by the way, I don't have the time, but I'm going to do it anyway. When I was taught this by my former pastor, I was working with him. It was the first time I ever was involved in officiating a wedding. 
you know, I was just kind of a young intern kid in my 20s, and the pastor was going to marry someone, and um, they asked me to be a part of it. And they asked the pastor, would it be okay if Errol, because he's been, you know, our teacher and our influence, influence in our life, can he be a part of the thing? So I was involved, not in every detail of the premarital counseling, but I was involved in a lot of the planning and involved in the wedding and what have you. That couple asked if they could have communion in the Lord, in, have the Lord's Supper in their wedding ceremony. And Pastor Wade explained no, and he explained why, because he says communion is for the body of Christ. It's not for an exclusive thing. It's got to be, it's for the church. It's not for a wedding. It's not for a, a potluck dinner, you know, just at the campfire. So at any rate, uh, that was always stuck with me. And here it is in the scripture. Verse 48, when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. In other words, a stranger, a person who's not Jewish, can. These are instructions for later, on into the future, at their, their future, our past. If you're saved, you can. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or not, but you need to be converted. So if he's circumcised, then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land. It'll be like he's one of us which proves that God doesn't care about ethnicity. Let me repeat that. God doesn't care about ethnicity. He cares about faith. It's a spiritual thing, not a blood thing. Um, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. Once again, like baptism. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. And Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day, the very same day, this was a rush job, that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according, once again, to their what? Their armies. He calls them armies. These are, this is a ragtag group of slaves that have just been set free. He calls them my army, spiritual army. Spiritual army. And we just want you to see the continuity of the covenants. And you see it a lot when it comes to baptism being... There's a continuity, not in all ways, but in some ways there's a continuity between circumcision and baptism, and there's a continuity between Passover and the Lord's Supper. Not in every detail, but same God and the same purposes in them. Exodus chapter 13, verse 1, Passover instructions for a new nation. And this is, this is like, again, looking forward, more instructions. The firstborn belongs to God. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Verse 2, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast is mine. Why? Because God had spared them in the Passover, and I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that the firstborn of the Egyptians were all slain by God, and yours weren't. I want you to remember that it was my grace that you still have these kids, and, that, and you're going to remember that when you have a firstborn child, he's going to be here, it's going to be a male, we'll see in a minute needs to be consecrated specially to the Lord. Here's how. Oh, before that, um, verse 3, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is, is established and associated with Passover. As a matter of fact, many Jewish people refer to Passover not only just as the Passover, but as the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It's the, they're, they're one and the same. Passover takes place on one day. The Feast takes seven. And Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of the hand of the Lord brought you out. 
They didn't do it themselves, just like our salvation. We didn't save ourselves. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month of Abib, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to give, for your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service, the Passover and the unleavened bread, this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there will be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall uh, leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. For what purpose? Because there's something about the leavened bread? No, because it's a reminder of your salvation. It's a reminder of your salvation, of the day I brought you out of here. I love what he says in, in verse 3, by the strength of the hand of the Lord, that's how you're saved. Verse 10 tells us a little bit about using these things once again for discipling our children. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. This is how God saved us, children. We do this so that we never forget how God saved us. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you up out of Egypt. You therefore shall keep this ordinance uh, in the season from year to year. So it's to continue on. Um, verse 11, some details about the consecration of the firstborn. And the reason for it, never forget that God spared them on the first Passover, spread the firstborn, because every, all the Egyptians, their firstborns all died, but Jews didn't. Why? Because God was protecting you. It shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. Now here it's all that open the womb. That is the firstborn that comes from any animal which you have. The males shall be the Lord's. Now, it's interesting, in the Passover, there's no indication that, it, we don't know, there's just no, nothing said about well, the firstborn in Egypt, it's not said it'd just be males. And the firstborn of the Jews that were spared, it doesn't say anything about it just being males. But when it comes to a ceremony to remember what he did, he says, the males shall be the Lord's. Um, I told you I'd tell you why, okay? I get two answers. First, I don't know. Actually, I'm going to tell you three things. First, I don't know, and I think I told Russ this. I looked at, I think, 12 commentaries to see what they said about this verse in the males. It was a miracle. All 12 of them said absolutely nothing about that word males. So we're left to say, oh, what does it mean? I don't know. That's one part. But the other thing is, is that what does everything point to? The firstborn, only begotten male child of God. Christ. I'm going to go with that because when in doubt, say it's because of Jesus. You'll probably be right, especially if it's something from the Old Testament. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem uh, with a lamb. In other words, you have to sacrifice a lamb in order to keep the donkey. If you do, will not redeem it, then you need to break its neck. You either have to kill your donkey or you have to sacrifice a lamb in its place. And all the firstborn among first born of man among your sons you shall redeem not by killing him but by sacrifice so it shall be when so that's by sacrifice but then verse 14 comes back to discipling your children so it shall be when your son asks you in time to come saying what is this that you say to him by strength of the hand of the lord 
by strength of the hand of the Lord, by the hand of the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You tell your kids, God saved us. We're not just Christians because it's cultural. We're not just Christians because we are born in a Christian America or because our parents are Christian. We're Christians if the Lord God has saved us. And there's only one way to be saved, and that's faith in Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead to pay for our sins. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn, you're telling your kids this, when it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the beast, therefore... This is why we're doing what we're doing. I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Verse 16, it shall be a sign on you, on your hand, and as frontlets between your eyes. That'll come up in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're not there yet. For by strength of the hand of the Lord, the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. I really, want to, I really want to emphasize this. I realize probably very few of you are, are in households of little children. We need to pray that there'll be more households of little children in our church. Do your children know your testimony, or do they just know that you're a Christian and you go to church? Do your children know your testimony? You know, I mean, our, our kids, God saved us after we had kids. We were married before we were saved, but we didn't have kids until we were saved. Not because it was planned that way. That's the way God planned it. And when we try to tell our kids, we're care careful. We certainly don't glorify our sinful lives before we were Christians. But, you know, we, we were worldly. And when they were teenagers, they said, we can't picture you guys being worldly. We go, good. <laughs> but we were purposeful to tell our, look, at we were lost, but God saved us. I want to just emphasize how powerful that is to tell our children. We were lost, but God saved us. And here's how. Our story isn't the same as theirs. It has nothing to do with Pharaoh, but it has to do with the death of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. We need to tell our kids our testimonies. How did we get saved? Why are we saved? And what has God done in our lives since? They need to know that, not just it's, it's Sunday and we go to church on Sunday. That's a good thing, but that's not everything. Okay, Exodus 13, verses 17 through 22. We'll end there tonight. God leads Israel. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. That would have been the coastal route. <clears throat> Although it was nearer. It was a shorter way to get there, taking the coastal route, taking Highway 1 instead of, you know, one of the inland routes. Why? Although it was near, because God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. In other words, if they, if they took the coastal route, which would be, you know, I'm trying to draw this map in your mind backwards. They take the coastal route from Egypt like this up into Israel. It's a shorter, shorter trip, but they're going to come across the Philistines. The Philistines were the descendants of the Phoenicians who had were a pretty developed people when they, they were a seafaring people and they came and set up that part of Israel along the coastline. And of course, you know, they were still fighting the Philistines with Goliath. God in his mercy says, you know what? We're going to take the longer way around. Instead of going right up the coast, we're going to go across the d desert and up because you're not going to have as much resistance. That may seem like a small thing, but I just, I, I just think... I just wrote in my notes, God's tender care for his people. 
These people just, just, they just came out of slavery. They don't know how to go to war, even though they're the army of the Lord. So I'm going to take them in the path of, of less resistance. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, the inland route. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Now here's a, verse 19 is sort of a parenthetical statement that's important, but it doesn't seem to go with the flow. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. You remember Joseph, that was 400 years earlier. They kept his bones because he had said, bury me back in old Virginia. Okay, he said, Take, bury my bones in the promised land when you ever get back. It was 400 years later. They still had some sort of something with his bones in them, and they brought his bones to keep the promise to their father, their ancestor. I think that's great. It's, it's all listed there. Verse 20, because you carry, he says, you, when you do it, you have to take them, my bones, and so that's what they did. Verse 20, so they took their journey from Succoth and camped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. So God supernaturally let them know when to move and which way to go. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people until when? Until they came into the promised land. That was there the whole time. We don't know exactly what it looks like. There's artists' renditions of what it, but it seems to me that it was something that was big enough and magnificent enough that no matter where you were in the camp, you could see it. So that when anybody said, okay, we're moving, there was no question. This isn't Moses has got itchy feet and wants to move. Or we're staying and we want to move. No, when God says stay, you stay. When God says move, you move. That's good instruction for the Christian life, isn't it? That's really good. Now, we don't have a miraculous pillar to tell us, but we have the words of God, and we have the counsel of the saints, and we have the Spirit living within us. But God leads his people. Okay, so God led them. Where? And this is our, our drop-off point for tonight and a set-off point for next. Where did he lead them first? To the edge of the Red Sea. God led them there. It wasn't bad luck. It wasn't the GPS didn't get them to the right turn. You know, the lady that lives on the phone that tells you where to go. God led these people and he led them right to the edge of the Red Sea. And I'm sure that most of you know what happened there. At the Red Sea was another great test of the people's faith. Would you agree? A great test of their faith, which they failed. But God still delivered. Be encouraged, child of God. Even when our faith falters, God is gracious to carry us and take care of us. So we'll conclude this series next time by look now that we finished the exodus we'll look just at a little bit more in a couple chapters we'll conclude next time considering god's grace to save them from pharaoh at the red sea and then god's grace to save them from thirst at a place called mara and then if god is willing we'll jump to the new testament and look at mark any questions tonight i know it's a little bit long That's what I get for going a little bit long. Father in heaven, thank you for the exodus. Thank you that you told them to tell their children what you did to save them. May we be wise to tell our children what, they, what you did to save us. And may they not just think that they're 
right with God because they're our kids. They need to be right with God by, be, by being saved. Oh, Lord, how we pray for the next generation. We pray, Lord, please save another generation. We, we pray that for the sake of our families. We pray that for the sake of our church. But we also pray that mostly for the sake of the glory of your name because you are Jehovah who saves. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.